Welcome to the Mastering the Mind podcast, where we take you through professional elite athletes and coaches' stories about how they cope with the psychological demands of competing at elite level. Today, we welcome Cédric Tullenhurst to the podcast. Cédric is a Belgian professional UEFA football coach and is currently the head coach of professional football team Al Hilal United and the academy director of Dubai United World Academy. Cedric has worked as a professional coach in Belgium, China, Lithuania and Dubai, both with youth and senior teams. So let's welcome Cedric to the podcast. Cedric, how are you doing? I'm fine, I'm fine. And you guys? Yeah, good, good. Yeah, yeah early early one for us today, but uh, but yeah, we're, we're super happy to be here. How, how, how's your day been so far? A little bit uh, hectic. It's good, it's good, but a little bit hectic because we have the game in the afternoon. A friendly match that they arranged uh, last moment. So yeah. this morning, busy with this uh, preparation, but everything is set now. So after the podcast, I will go immediately and perfect. Yeah. Now, yeah, we appreciate you coming on, even if it was kind of last minute for you, knowing that uh, that friendly game. But yeah, we appreciate you taking your time to speak with us. <laughs> yeah, it's my pleasure. Yeah, it's currently uh, 8 a.m. where I am. What time is it where you are? Now it's 12 yeah. o'clock. Oh, nice. Yeah, yeah. That's lunchtime. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> What's Sorry for that. No, 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 don't worry. <laughs> it's the, uh, it's the, I've got to get to work after this, so I, I've got a busy day as well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, no, a great place we like to start with our listeners, uh, for our listeners to get to know you, is uh, talk us through your sort of journey today. Give us an overview. So who is Cedric uh, Tullinus? Yeah. Okay, so... Um... Yeah, who said it, Tonis? Yeah, so I'm uh, born uh, and raised in Belgium. Um, I was playing football since I was very young. Uh, all my life I played football, but when I became 16, 17, 18, I realized, even it was my big dream to become a professional football player, I realized even my mind wants it, but my feet cannot do it, then it's like this. Uh, so I realized I cannot become a football player. Uh, or not professional football player and I got a little bit demotivated in playing football but I was uh, really in love with football itself I also was uh, playing a lot at that time uh, football managers and stuff like that so that got me really interested in the coaching part and when I was about 18 I was still playing uh, at an okay level Um, but more and more my motivation went to coaching and I started coaching with a really young little kids in a small club and I start to realize, like, yeah, this is something I really want to do. I want to put time and energy in it. And then basically the, through the years, I always started to do a little bit more. Like after one year, I went to like a bigger club. After two more years there, I went to a professional uh, club. I moved to the first division professional club. And then I was, I think, coaching about four, five, no, five six years in Belgium. And I came on this point that I had to make a decision at that time. There was no full-time contracts in Belgium for youth coaches. And uh, I was also going to quit uh, with school. So I had to make a decision or go abroad and pursue a career as full-time coach or stay in Belgium, but then go to work and have to work rush to go to, to the club. And even as professional club, it, it wouldn't feel like it's professional work. So that's basically what got me to go abroad to pursue a, a full-time contract, to be full-time busy in football. And I was already doing some football camps in the summer in America and in uh, Cameroon. And I really felt like living abroad, that would be really something for me to learn about new cultures, learn about different environments for players to, to excel in. Also, 
different circumstances that you as coach need to adapt to and, and, and work to. So I went to China after nine months, my first contract finished and I, I moved to a professional academy there. And it was a very nice experience. Um, I was there two years. We played in the under 19 uh, Chinese FA League. Uh, it was very nice because we played three matches in two weeks time. And, you know, China's very big. So every week you're flying or traveling to different cities. You're staying in hotels all the time. It's like basically like you're playing a Champions League match almost every week because you must fly three or four hours. In Belgium, it was you go on the bus in the morning. Uh, after yeah. half an hour, you arrive, you play a match back on the bus and that's it. And there it was every week you were flying or traveling to, to, to play matches. And yeah, I, I enjoyed my time there. I enjoyed my stay there. But after two years, the club got sold. And... Uh, my boss calls me and asks me if I was interested to work for a different club. He was going to put there one Croatian coach and I could be assistant coach for the first team. And I moved then to Sichuan Junior. Uh, it's in Chengdu. It was very nice. It was a League Two team. Everything was arranged perfect. We had a nice stadium, very good hotels. Uh, always on match days uh, or match weekends, we were even if we play home, we were just three days in the, in the hotel um, near to the stadium. It was really well organized. And after I had a contract for one year and a half, and after uh, six months or seven months, the season finished because we came in the middle of the season and the city group was going to take over the club. So we are very excited because big money is coming in and, you know, next season we can play for the promotion and also the team, they got promoted. But the Chinese investors who came together with uh, the city group decided to take uh, Chinese coaches. So as soon as they put the signature on, under, the, under the sale, on the documents of the sale, they invited us to the office. They said, look, we want to keep you, all the foreign stuff. We want to keep you. We're very happy. But this is the way how it goes. Decision from upper. And uh, I'm very sorry. Here's your uh, tickets and all the money and, and everything. And I'm sorry, but bye-bye. So that was a disappointment for us. But still, I, I see it as a good experience. Then I was uh, another five months head coach in the, the fourth league. But also there, uh, it was a short season and, and, and the money finished. So... I went back to Belgium. I did some freelance work for the Belgian Federation uh, when I was without any club at that moment. And suddenly I got a call to go to, to Lithuania. So never in my life I thought I would go to Lithuania. But I was also in China, in Inner Mongolia for two years. I never thought in my life I would be in Inner Mongolia. But, you know, when suddenly they call you, you say, what to do? So I went there uh, for two or three days to, to visit the club, to, to negotiate about contract. And everything was, was very good, was nice. And uh, I had the offer also to go back to China. And my wife said, no, no, no. I want to, to stay in Europe, closer to family. So for one time, I listened to my wife. <laughs> so I went, to, so I went to, uh, to Vilnius. We started there. And after six months, I had the opportunity to start working for the Federation there. So they said, look, we really like you. We really want you to work with us. But at the moment, there's only um, availability as head of women's football. So it was like, for me, a little bit thinking what to do, what should I do? Because I came from the men football, but it was inside the federation. It was with the national teams. Uh, it was with also with the A national teams. I was also doing regional projects um, across the country for the, for the boys football. And I was thinking at a given moment, actually is the role of the technical director, but nobody, no federation would give me this role as technical director anywhere in the world. Um, but now I have the, at this age, but now I have the time and the chance to learn it 
in women's football. And I, and I thought like for me and for my future career, it will be very good to, to learn how the processes are going inside Federation, what are all the tasks and responsibilities. And really, it, uh, I learned there a lot. I, I really enjoyed my stay there also. Until that day uh, that I received a phone call from uh, United World and they said, look, we want to speak to you a little bit. We have uh, several clubs. We have uh, Sheffield in England. We have uh, Beerschot in Belgium. We have uh, Chateauroux in France. But we have also a project in India with Kerala and a project in Al Hilal uh, in Dubai with Al Hilal. And we speak a little bit and say, look, we are really interested for you to come to Al Hilal. It's a nice project. And for me, it was also, a, or it is a very nice project because it's, it's not really a regular, regular club in that way that it's really more, you must see it like a feeder club. So we are getting talented players from Africa. Uh, we try to train them very well. You know, it's, it's always a risk with football players. If you take them directly from their country and you put them in a new country, they need time to adapt to the training style. They need time to adapt to the local life. They need to, you are actually also not 100% sure if they can pick up the pace of, of the intensity of the training sessions. So the goal is with these boys to train here in the European uh, style, let's say like this. And then after a year, we have a very clear overview and we can put some players in Europe and we take less risk um, in this way. And that's actually the project where I'm in now for United World. I'm here in, in Al Hilal. And that's uh, like a very brief overview of what I've been doing in the last couple of years. Yeah, that's, that's fascinating. And I was about to say, like, you're very young and you've had this bunch of experience already. And it's, uh, it's really, really impressive. Um, I was just going to ask you, so did you have any inspirations in terms of like coaches that you tried to kind of emulate or anything like that any big inspirations for you well i would not say big inspirations um but of course you always want to learn more you need to to study the game all the time and you need to steal with your eyes you look at coaches what they're doing you follow training sessions um for me i, I am lucky that i had the opportunity to meet and work with a lot of coaches from different cultures from different countries and often it's very interesting just to have a coffee with one coach even he's not working at the top top level but still he's working at a decent level and you're having a coffee with him and you're speaking and discussing about football you can learn so much um one of the coaches that maybe i like a lot and is not very popular one is um is Mourinho because you know he he played very well like his style is very obvious his style how he wants to play even the people, maybe they don't like this style of play, but when he was at Chelsea, uh, I believe the second time, he was playing so defensively, but mm. he was getting results. And you see also the years after, you know, you need to play with the qualities you have. And uh, it's also always fun just to listen to his interviews, that's for sure as well. Yeah. So, his Instagram is gold. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, and I like this kind of coaches and people in general that have a little bit more color to life than just always being very formal and be very on the line. Yes. Trying not to offend anybody. So I like it. Yeah. I agree. I agree. Um, obviously we spoke about your journey there. We spoke about Mourinho. Um, obviously we talk about the psychology of, um, of football, of coaching, of players. What do you feel makes a successful um, head coach or, or coach in general in football? Um, in terms of psychology? Yeah, I think it's very important for a coach to be empath empathic. Empathic, yeah. <laughs> empathic, sorry. Yeah. Uh, you know, because you are working with 
a group, but also with all different uh, individuals. And you need to make sure you're touching all the guys uh, in the right way. Uh, yeah, touching in the right way, let's say like this. Um, because if you always only speak to the group and you cannot motivate players in the individual base, some players will be left out. There will be some cracks in the team atmosphere and stuff like this. I think this is very important as a coach that, that you know how to to reach the players and to get into their mind and motivate them. Uh, also, I think uh, inspiring. You must be an inspiring person if you're just sitting there and or standing there and no player believes what you're saying or no player believes in themselves because the way that you're speaking, I think it's very difficult because if you're playing or coaching at the top level, all players are good players. Maybe your team is maybe not as good as some other teams, but all they're good players. So you really must get in the mind of the players to get them to 100% because tactics they will understand quite fast because they are a decent level. But getting in their mind, getting them ready to play 100%, I think this is very important. And that you also must show as, as, as a coach with confidence and inspiring your players. Mm. It's interesting you say that. I'm not, I'm not sure whether it was Mourinho or Alex Ferguson. Being a Man U fan, obviously, I listened to a lot of their interviews when they were managers of uh, our club. And um, one of them was saying, uh, you know, he coaches the best players in the world. He's not going to be able to make them uh, a better footballer technically. They're already so gifted. Um, but what he can do is teach them to play his way and in his uh, style. And that's the key of a coach to, to be able to do that. Um, so it's interesting you say that because it's very similar to what they said. And obviously, Mourinho being an inspiration for you or, or someone that you... I don't know, like uh, like his style. Uh, it's interesting that you said that. Yeah, yeah and I, I think it's it's what he says is both tactically, yes, they need to understand, but it's also psychologically they want they must want to uh, play in this uh, style because I can or a coach can explain whatever you want, but if the players don't believe that this plan will work or this style will work, then they will also not do it. So I think it goes in both ways. Mm. Yeah, I mean, it's similar to what's going on at Man United at the moment with Ralph Rangnick and, you know, uh, yeah. I mean, the players aren't really buying into, into into what he's doing. There's a lot of leaks that come out about, you know, they're not impressed with his tactical style. Um, how do you sort of develop that buy-in from the players um, in getting them on board with your tactical sort of style? I think, I think two things are uh, very important there. First, you must have a tactical style, a tactical plan, something you know exactly how you want to play. And you must also be prepared for questions. Uh, yeah. Because if players are involved, they will ask questions, but what if this happens? What if that happens? Who must step out there? Who must step out there? And you must really know it. I would say 100%, but in reality, it's 100% is very difficult. But let's say 99%, you must know it exactly that if you receive these questions, that you can answer them correctly, in the same way that they really see, you know what you're speaking about. And secondly, I think the other thing is important, how you deliver it, uh, how you can speak to the players. Of course, you must do tactical meetings and show some videos and animations. But it's also important, even more important on the field when you do the training session, that it's in the same line as the style that you're explaining uh, before that. And that players really start to understand, ah, this is what the coach said or what they wanted to see. Now we're doing on the field and yeah, I feel I get more success in this way than if I would do something else, uh, mm. for example. I think that's really interesting for our coaches, listeners. Um, 
that point is uh, it's very important for them to to kind of develop so um and we're also interested in knowing about your kind of coaching philosophy so what is your kind of approach what's your kind of philosophy what are your values as a coach tell us more uh so my coaching philosophy i find is always uh very extensive to to explain because <laughs> my style is or how i would describe my style let's say like this is very flexible uh in that way what I'm looking at is, you know, you cannot do with every team the same thing. I know all the coaches now or many coaches now, they want to play like uh, Guardiola at City or like uh, Liverpool uh, with Klopp at Liverpool. But you must have this kind of players. If you don't have this kind of players, I, I'm 99% sure that if Guardiola tomorrow is coach of Watford, he will not try to play the same style. And if he would try, I think he will be out after five matches. Mm -hmm. uh, I think. I'm not sure mm -hmm. about this, but this is what I think. So... What I try to do, and I wrote this all down uh, yeah, on the papers, on, on my laptop, in documents, is I try to make a style that's very flexible. So like all coaches, we have principles. But what I like to do is that my principles, they're a little bit more vague. For example, uh, a principle for me would be uh, making overloads in the midfield area. And then below that, I would have options very specific. So it can be your central defender who dribbles in with the ball to create overload in midfield. Or it can be, second option, your winger that cuts inside uh, to make an overload in the middle. Or your striker that drops to the midfield. So there are three different options that are very specific. But I would look at my team, what style of players I have, what type of players I have. If I'm playing with Lukaku in my team, I will not ask him to drop to the midfield and to create the overload there because he's not the guy who has the most uh, potential there in the midfield in the tight areas. But if, for example, Messi was my striker, then I can say, yes, you would drop into this tight spaces in midfield to create overloads like that. So I make an overview of very vague principle, not vague, but not mm -hmm. so narrowed down principles, but then very specific options. And I look at my team. I always want to play in the same, st same style, let's say like this, but depending on the type of players I have, I will choose different options. So, for example, now my team is, is quite strong. We have a lot of possession. We are playing on, on, on the top of the league at the moment. So, we are playing a possession-based style of football at this moment. But still, I like to play as fast as possible forward. So, if there is space forward somewhere, we try to play first ball directly forward, if it is. If not, no problem. We keep the ball. We move the ball around until the spaces. And then, as soon as there is space, again, we play forward. Now, when I was at, uh, in, in Dayu, uh, in China, with the under-19 team, there we got a team with all released, released players from different academies. So these are players that were unwanted by their academies. And we just took them, collected them for free, and we played with them. So you would expect this team to play at the bottom. But again, there, we work in a good defensive organization. And the first idea was, if we win the ball, if there's a chance to play direct forward, we play direct forward. And I just try to adapt to the qualities of the players I have and try to develop them inside uh, their qualities. And you also saw then with, with this team, we were mid-table with all players that were released by other academies. So I think if you have a good philosophy, if you have a good style, you can get results, you can develop players. Um, but for me personally, it's quite difficult to say my style is this in a very short way. I would say it's more flexible. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I suppose that gives you the best chance of success at all different clubs because obviously 
as you said, you're looking at an overview of the players that you have. I suppose a lot of coaches get caught in that trap of having such a fixed philosophy and sort of living by the sword and dying by the sword because they're stuck in that one style of play. And if it's not working, they don't sort of have a, a plan B or know how to work around it. So it's interesting you say that. I definitely think that should be like an approach going forward uh, for a lot of modern coaches. Um, in your system, what are sort of the psychological demands of a footballer? Um, so like, what do you look for in your players in terms of like psychological attributes or qualities? Um, do you know what I mean? Uh, Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I understand. So if you're looking to players, I think this is probably the most difficult uh, area to, to, to see uh, because you cannot see it, actually. If I'm going to watch a game, I cannot see how he's living outside of his life. I don't know if he's uh, going to bed at the right time. I don't know if he's uh, partying every weekend or he is uh, eating a salad, for example. Mm-hmm. It's very basic what I'm saying now. So, but just to show that's very difficult. And that's why I like this project that I'm in now, because before we take them to Europe, we put them here one year to live here with us. And we can really see how is their attitude on the fields, but also how is their attitude off the field? What is their, uh, their mindset, how, what they want to reach? And I think at this moment, the most important maybe for me is the, the winner's attitude. Uh, and very broad winner's attitude. Yes, on the field, you must have winner's attitude. You must fight, you must be able to win, you must be able, willing to win, but also outside of the fields. Winner's attitude, you always want to be the best. You are okay with going to sleep at the right time, you're okay to eat the right food, you're okay to train extra, you're okay to take care of your body. Um, And I think this is one of the most important things for me. Uh, Another one I find personally very, very important is passion. I, I myself, I have a big passion for football and also a passion for winning. And I think the players also must show this. They, if they come to the training and it feels like they're coming to work, then something is wrong, um, both in the head of the player, but maybe also in your way of coaching the players. They really must love to come to training. You know, for me, even sometimes in all my career, it was also not always perfect. But every time I was on the field, you know, you don't think about any problem. You're just enjoying the training session, the, the match, even you're losing, but you're still there in that uh, atmosphere. So I think passion is very important and they must show this also during the matches. But at the same time, they must also be able to deal with these emotions, you know, uh, especially with young guys. Sometimes they get annoyed or this or that and they start to take a yellow or stupid red card or stuff like this. So I believe this is something that can be developed. Um, to control the emotions a little bit. But I believe it's better to have too much emotions than no emotions at all. Um, And what we also try to give to the players is they must uh, set goals for themselves. Okay, we have now the goal, you're here to improve, but also on short term, in the training, what you want to improve or what you want to work on or how we are going to work on these kind of things. But also on longer term, okay, we have uh, uh, different clubs, Okay, your goal must be uh, after one year or after two years to be in this club. And we, we speak and discuss this also with the players. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's good because obviously you're talking about the attitude, you're talking about passion and the emotions, you know. I suppose body language is like really important for you. Um, when you're looking at your players on the pitch, in terms of body language, what do you not look for? What don't you like to see on the pitch from your players? Huh. <laughs> um, there are a couple of things uh, 
body language uh, in that way you have sometimes players they, they lose the ball or they they fail with an action or something or something like this and immediately the first thing they do is the head go down you know this this is one of the things I don't like but this is also one of the things me as a coach I need to work on with this kind of player that it won't happen because one it's affecting him uh, it's also dealing with the emotion but two it's also affecting the team because uh, he, he loses the ball the head go down and he's out of the game for three or four or five seconds but if there if he has switched on Okay, he loses the ball immediately. He put pressure or, or fall back into block. It's a different uh, different story. Um, other things, of course, in body language, I don't like is is when somebody else make a mistake and, and a player is showing this maybe not by his words, but with his body language. Um, there's also something I don't like about myself. I try not to do this, but sometimes you're in the emotion that if, if something goes bad, that you go like and. You're not shouting anything negative, but even if some of the guys see that the coach is disappointed, maybe it will affect them. So I try to work on this as well for myself, uh, just to not show too much disappointment, let's say like this. Yeah. yeah, it seems you reflect a lot about your kind of coaching style. Like that's one example there. And you previously mentioned that you wanted the players to be happy, like coming to training and stuff. And if they're not, then you kind of look at your own uh, coaching style. So it's really interesting that you constantly reflect upon yourselves as well. Um, and I was going to ask, so in terms of kind of psychological demands of coaching, could you kind of shed light on what you feel are the tough things of being a coach are like? Well, like in <laughs> football, it's... Uh... The most beautiful game uh, there is, but there's also a downside, and especially for coaches. Uh, if there's a season and the team is not performing, it's not often a player will get sacked. It's uh, most likely the coach will get sacked. So I think there's always stress if you're head coach, uh, conscious or un un unconscious. There's some yeah. stress in your body that you know uh, we lose two matches in a row or we didn't win for three matches, that you feel a little bit of stress. Uh, I think this is this is quite normal. This also you must accept as as head coach. If you cannot cope with this, okay, it's no problem. But then you must look as maybe assistant coach or youth coach, where you have a little bit more uh, security. Um, but this is one of the things. Apart from that, I don't see big demands specifically as, as a coach. Uh, mm -hmm. Of course, you must be able to communicate very well with players, and you know. A lot of complaints of the team or of players individual and the managers, they come back to you. So you must be able to cope with this as well. But I think this is normal as a coach. You must be able to handle it and, and cope with it. I think there's maybe a little bit more stress or uh, challenges with living abroad because you must adapt to the situation. Uh, some things, they don't go smooth. It's not you receive your ticket and your, uh, your contract and you get on the airplane and everything is sorted. Um, Everywhere, everything was sorted, but everywhere also there were some issues. Then it was the visa that was not on time. Then it was this, then it was that. Uh, one example, for example, when I signed with, uh, with the team, the IUFC, it was a team from, from Beijing. Uh, at that time, my girlfriend, she was living in Belgium and she didn't want to move to China, but I was in negotiations with this team. So she flew to, to China, to Beijing. She saw the facility, she saw the apartment, she fell in love. I was, I was very happy because the club was good, uh, the facility was good, uh, my girlfriend wanted to come, everything was set. And then I signed the contract, uh, 1st of July I would start, it was like the end of May. 
And one week later, the new boss calls me and he says, like, uh, we have a small problem, but don't worry. We have a small problem. Say, so, okay, what's the small problem? Uh, the investor, he don't want to pay anymore. So for me, it was not a small problem. It was a very big problem because I was worrying a lot because, you know, I just signed a contract there and suddenly there's no money. So what I can do, I can just wait. And, and three days before my contract starts, he calls me. He says, like, Cedric, good news. Uh, we have a new investor from Inner Mongolia. I said, oh, I don't care where this uh, investor is from. I'm just happy I can start. Mm -hmm. Okay. So my wife is, is planning to come in like September to Beijing. Okay. It's the end of June. Suddenly I received uh, flight tickets to go to Hohot. I said, what, what is this? I call him. What is this? Yeah, yeah, you'll go there. I said, oh, okay, to play some tournaments. No, no, no. We have investors from Inner Mongolia. I said, so what? Yeah. Then you move there. So... I was planning to go to Beijing and or to stay in Beijing and to start working there. And two days before I start working, they say, no, you moved to, to Inner Mongolia. I never heard of Inner Mongolia. I didn't know where it was. My boss on the telephone, don't worry. It's close to Beijing. You will be in the capital. Uh, you can go every weekend back to Beijing. I look on Google Maps, 600 kilometers. I said, no, I'm not going every weekend back to Beijing. Okay. So I go there to, to Hohot, the capital of Inner Mongolia. I arrived there. We drive more than one hour to the south in the middle of the desert. They built their 12 football fields. And this is where you're going to work. And, you know, suddenly life is like this. But believe me, in those couple of weeks, I had a lot of stress because also my girlfriend was coming. I don't know if she would like this or this and that. In the end, everything worked out very well. But these are the things or uh, yeah, challenges I experienced, for example. Yeah, these are the things that we don't see, isn't it? Um, and in terms of like coping with this stress uh, as a as a manager, as a coach, how do you go about it? Is there anyone that helps you outside of football or in football? Or colleagues? Actually, actually uh, it's not that I have somebody professional that is helping me with that to cope with that. Uh, I think that. Uh, by doing some sports myself, uh, I relieve a lot of stress. Uh, also, you know, when you have a free time, you must also enjoy the life. Like in China, I was traveling all the time, so it was very busy, very hectic. But then if you had a day off uh, in another city, it was nice. You can explore a new city or you can go to a nice restaurant in a different city. And, and this is what I try to do here as well. I try to do my work 100%. I accept also all the stress that comes with it. Uh, but then when it's a day off or when it's the evening off and I promised my wife or some friends to do some sports or something, then I also dedicate this time really to that. Mm. Yeah, it's, it's self-care, isn't it? So kind of yeah. dis disconnecting from, from your role because I think some coaches might use that day off to work on the tactics or, you know, so for you, it's, yeah, it's important well, actually, to kind of step I, I'm, back also and... uh... I'm also doing that. <laughs> Not slacking. <Yeah. laughs> but then, yeah, you know, let's say if it's on my day off and now the girlfriend is my wife now and yeah. my wife is also free, let's say in the evening, and she says, we go to a restaurant, then okay, I say I go to a restaurant. But even during the day, yeah, she will be maybe watching a movie. I will be still working and, and, and trying to make some analysis, analysis of the last game or preparing some training sessions or stuff like that i'm also doing that so yeah yeah talking about so your journey like through china um, and obviously you've worked in other countries how have you sort of coped with the language barriers um obviously i'm not sure if you're fluent in in chinese and, uh, <laughs> i would not say fluent, I would not say fluent. <laughs> but uh 
Yeah, so my, my first contract was in Beijing. And in Beijing, also not so many people speak English, but you can find quite some people that speak English. And like we had a lot of translators. So for every training session, we can just take a translator, no problem. If you go to the restaurant, you learn over time like the basic words for this or that. And it's okay. And once in a while, you find somebody who can help you in English. So in Beijing, it was okay. But then when I moved to Inner Mongolia, it was all my team didn't speak one word English. Uh, okay, let's say maybe two players spoke three words or something like this, but it was really, really, really basic. I didn't learn any Chinese uh, rather than the words like, I want this and I want that. Um, so it was also not very useful in training, but I had my translator there. Um, so I started working with the translator and after one week or two weeks, he had some emergency in the family and he had to leave uh, the, the training base. So suddenly I was there with uh, 20 guys who don't speak uh, English. I was there not speaking Chinese. So in the beginning, it was, it was difficult. But the best thing there was, if there's nobody to translate for you, you learn very fast because you must use it. And even in the beginning, it sounds a little bit strange and funny and you make mistakes. But over time, you, yeah, you, you learn quite fast, I, I found out. And they started to learn a little bit English or speak a little bit English. I started to speak a little bit Chinese, like in coaching. I think my Chinese is okay. Not, not, I cannot speak one-on-one -on -one about tactics uh, in details, but I can give a presentation and I can speak when this guy must step out and when this guy must drop back and uh, when he must switch side, for example, like this. But I cannot go into details about uh, how the body must be shaped and why or why the body must be shaped like this. Uh, about these details, I cannot. Um, but I think the language is important because, you know, like I said before, you must be able to touch each player and you can touch a player with your body language but if you can speak to them and they can understand you it's so much uh, more important like in Lithuania it was it was quite okay because all the young players they speak uh, perfect English okay and, and here in uh, Al Hilal we had a Brazilian who don't speak English we had some French guys uh, like French speaking guys who don't speak English but I speak some French as well and it was, you know, I feel it's very, very, very good because uh, in the beginning, all the guys are new. Some of these uh, French-speaking Africans, they have a very deep voice. They speak very loud. So some of the players, they were like a little bit scared or impressed or they didn't know what to do. And they're like, oh, they're always angry. So no, they're not angry. I can understand what they say. It's just their style of speaking. And then over time, you know, it was more easy for me, for me to speak to them. Uh, like the doctor, if he had to speak to, to one of the French guys, it's quite difficult. It must be with Google Translate. So for me, it was more easy to bond directly from the beginning because I spoke the language. Mm -hmm. And I, I try to learn when I'm there in that country. I try to learn uh, the language. Some words, not yeah. too much, but some words that at least I can say something that they really understand me. Yeah. Talking about that sort of culture there, uh, in terms of like how, how they're speaking, what about sort of the culture of football um, in all these different countries? How have you found that? Is it different in China to Lithuania to now Dubai? Like, how have you found that? Uh, it's very different. <laughs> it's, yeah. it's very different. So, for example, in Belgium, I think the youth academies, they, are, they work very good. They work very good. But still, they have limited means, like limited resources, they started to have more and more uh, full-time coaches now in Belgium, but at the moment, even not so many academies, they have the full-time coaches. Uh, I was in Manchester United Academy. Uh, I was in training base. I was in the 
in Chelsea training base, if I see how much resources they have there and how much money they have to spend on the academies there, I think what they're doing in Belgium was re was at that time already really good. And I'm sure it only improved in, in the last couple of years. Then you go to, to China where it's crazy. It's like they have all the money. Like, for example, like my team, they don't have the investor anymore. Uh, yeah. My team has the players. But suddenly we find a club in Inner Mongolia. Yeah, what happened there? Because I say, well, how would they have suddenly 12 fields in the middle of the desert? Ah, it's a local government. They wanted to build here a football academy. They wanted to promote the, the football here. There was not even a real village there, but okay. I said, so why did they take our team? Yeah, they didn't have players. So they built the fields, but they don't have players. So that's why uh, they got some complaints from the government and they tried to find one team and they took our team. So, you know, the, the logic and the, the way of working in China, sometimes you see very different ways. Um, also in China, the Chinese coaches, they love respect, but uh, the respect is something different than what we say in, in, in Belgium uh, or in Europe. Respect in China means you listen and you do what the coach says. Uh, for example, when we play the tournaments with all the professional teams, in the morning, we are staying in the same training base. In the morning, we all go to breakfast. And me and the guys, we just meet, let's say, 8 o'clock in front of the building. We go together. At 7.30, you see teams standing outside, line by line, standing next to each other, and the Chinese coach in front of them shouting, and today you will behave, and today you will do this, and you must sleep, and you must eat good, and this and that. And for them, it was like kind of respect. One time, we were in a training base, and um, my players, they were walking freely to, to the dinner or to the training ground. I don't remember exactly. But they were really walking as a group. And suddenly one of the coaches come to my, uh, from the other team, come to my uh, translator says, like, I saw your team play. They play really good, but there's no structure. Eh? Look how they walk. They must walk two by two, side by side, uh, in, in two lines. And my translator come to, to say this to me. I said, okay, thank you very much for your advice, but I feel for the group is better. They can be a little bit more free. They're 18 years old. It's like this. But this was their culture there. You know, it must be very strict. It must be like this. And if everybody walks in the line, it means they respect me. Well, for us, it's it's not like this. Like asking them questions, they were not used to this. In the beginning, you ask them questions, they just look at you. Yeah. They don't answer. Over time, they get used to this, but it's something that's not in their culture. Yeah. Um, in Lithuania, it was also, it was nice, but... To be honest, it's it's basketball is the number one sports there. So, and you have the big winter there. You know, in the winter, it's yeah. a lot of snow, a lot of rain. It's minus 10, minus 15. It's it's very harsh conditions to, to play football. So mm. it also affects the way how the football is, how the football culture is there. Um, and now you are here in UAE. I think I'm here in UAE. I think there's a lot of potential here but also some same issues that I faced in, in China or that the clubs are facing like in China uh, with logistics. You know, many clubs are very young. They don't have the experience yet to, to run the clubs very, very well. Uh, I, I see this with a lot of, you know, with some other clubs that say like this. But that's also the reason why we as foreigners must go abroad to, to help them, to develop them, to, to develop their coaching style in a different way. So that's also why it's a, a nice challenge for me and interesting for me. Yeah. Do you try and 
change the culture over there like in football because obviously it might be quite difficult like you said for these young guys they've been taught all their lives to act this way and do you try to change it or do you accept it and try yeah. and adapt or it must be a difficult position for you to yeah. there, there are two different ways two different things actually one is working with the players and with the players you can still change you can still mm. change them especially when they're 16 17 18 19 20 you can still change them because I think also all your Western style is more approachable. You know, it's more more easy to access. I think for some European players to go to train with this kind of coaches and it's very strict would be more difficult mentally than the other way around that where they get a little bit more freedom. Now, the, the second thing is to change coaches. Um, the, the first time I was in China, I made the, I'm honest, I made that a mistake. I came to China, I was very motivated. Uh, I said, I will, I will teach everybody, everybody, everything I know. I will help them. I will do this. I will do that. And actually it had the opposite effect. You know, this young guy coming here, he's going to tell us, we are already coaching for 20 years. He's going to tell us what to do, hey, who this guy thinks he is. And they didn't really accept this in, in, the, in the first club. But it's okay. Over time, they see the team, my team is getting some good results. They start to ask some questions. They start to watch some training sessions and it starts to grow. But after that, every time I just said like, look, okay, wherever I come in China or after Lithuania or even here in Dubai, you know, I'm very open. I want to teach everybody what I know. I, I want to speak about football, what I want, but I will not go and, and, and let's say preach it. I will just do my thing. I will do my work. And what I notice is after a, certain amount of time, they see, ah, this guy is working different. Ah, this guy is getting some results. And people start to come to you and they start to ask you by themselves, like, hey, I, I have uh, some problems in my team with this. How would you solve it? Or I need some exercises for this. Uh, can you give me some tips? Uh, how, can you come and watch my game? And I see in this way, they ask me, I feel it's a lot better than me going in and saying, you must do like that, you must do like that. Um, and that's what I'm trying to do now yeah, since the, the the first years of China, I changed this, and this is how I try to do it now everywhere I go. Mm. Just whilst we're on the topic of culture, slightly off topic from football, which has sort of been your favorite place to live um, today? Oh, that's a question I get many times. Uh, <laughs> but I must say, I really loved living in China. I was there uh, four years, but also in four different cities, and everywhere I have some good memories. Uh, but I think number one is is Dubai because I'm uh, somebody who also likes warm climate. He has, of course, a warm climate. Uh, and, you know, I can be focused on football. I can be focused on my thing. Um, in China, I was also like this. So that's why for me, China and uh, Dubai is uh, the nicest place at the moment, let's say, to live. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I agree with you on the, the warm climate. Living in the UK has been a it's been a struggle. Obviously, I haven't been on holiday in like two years now because of COVID. So um, I can't wait to get out of the country for a bit. <laughs> to travel. I believe that. Uh, I must say, like when I was in Lithuania, the first year, it was okay the winter, but the second year, oh my god, I think we had six months winter. Jeez. After these six months, oh, I was so happy to get some sun. Even the in the beginning, just the sun in Lithuania, I was very happy. Yeah, so yeah. yeah, that's when I realized I I love warm weather. I would love a good climate. Mm. What 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 would you say is the biggest lesson you've learned from working in these different countries? Um, would you say? Well, I think 
as a person, but also as a coach, uh, you must be very open-minded. You know, I think before when I was younger, I live in Belgium. I was always thinking or focused on Belgium, 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 mm. and how it is here is good. And now I start to see both in like, let's say politics and, and, and just general life, as well as in coaching, you, you meet so many different uh, people, different cultures, different backgrounds. Uh, and I think in life and especially in football, we always go and look for the solution. It's either black or it's either white, but many times it's not like this. It's not because uh, one country wins the, uh, the World Cup, now suddenly this country is really developing the best players in the world. No, everywhere in all countries, we are doing something good. And from every country, we can learn many things. And I think we must be open for this as coaches, but also as people to learn from different cultures, to learn from different countries and always respect the local culture. You know, I cannot copy what I did in Belgium, in China, or what I did in China here in the UAE or in Lithuania. You must have your vision, you must have your idea, you must have your style, but you must always respect the local culture and try to implement it into the local culture as well. Yeah, I was, I was curious to know also the future of like Chinese football and like, what, what are your kind of thoughts on that? I was, I was curious. Do you think it's got a huge potential in the, in the coming years? Uh, I think there still is a huge potential, but they also have some uh, huge struggles. And I think now, especially with uh, Corona, mm-hmm. also the money is getting more tight for clubs and there's like a salary uh, limit for, for clubs and a fairness limit. Mm-hmm. So there are some struggles. How it was booming before, I don't believe it's still booming at, at the same speed, mm-hmm. but still... There's so many people, there's so many million people. There's so actually the country is crazy of football. Even yeah. when we played in League Two, we had uh, 12 uh, to 14,000 people watching, which for England is not so many. But if you compare to Belgium, it's, uh, it's a lot. Yeah. Um, so the people really love it there. The only issue is the country is too big. You know, inside the cities, even the cities are very big. Inside the split cities, there's so many other activities to do, so many other sports to do, that to make the real teams there is difficult to find strong teams in every city. And then let's say, even if you have in every city, you have strong teams, if you want to play with them against each other, you must travel. You must take the train for 10 hours. You must fly three hours. You know, you cannot do this with eight-year-old kids. You cannot do this with 12-year-old kids. Even sometimes I do it. But... You cannot take them every week to go to play matches. And I think this is one of the biggest struggles in, in, in Chinese football at the moment, that inside one city, there are not enough strong teams. So they will always have one strong team or one strong academy, but it's not enough to play. Yeah, If you always play against weaker teams, it's not enough to, to develop. And I think Chinese football should try, but it's easy to say as, a, as, as somebody is looking from the sides, try to set up some cities where they really focus on football and try to have three or four good teams in this city that they can play at young ages, many matches against each other. And then when they get 15, 16, 17, okay, they start traveling. Um, but yeah, I, I still think there's potential, um, but I think the potential is maybe a little bit less due to Corona and other, other issues. Yeah. In, in, in terms of like sports psychology, have you ever had an encounter with a sports psychologist throughout your, your period in football? So I, I was lucky when I was working at Leuven that we had this uh, like a mental coach. So 
at that time it was not full time, but we did some workshops uh, with them, like different teams went to do some workshops. I also followed myself, uh, myself I sorry, <laughs> I followed a, a course in mental coaching and football myself, because I think as a coach, especially as head coach, you must know from everything as much as possible. You cannot be specialist in everything, but for me, it's important to know from all aspects something that if one day I have a full-time mental coach or a psychology coach in my staff and he explained me something that I really understand what he's speaking about and why it is important and that I'm not uh, just listening and I have no clue what he's, he's talking about. So I had the luck already to do some workshops and to follow some courses, but I didn't work like on a very regular basis uh, with them. Do you think it would be beneficial? Like it would have been beneficial also, like maybe in your time in China, Lithuania, and now do you think it, it could help potentially help you? I don't think so. I, I know for sure it's uh, beneficial. The only thing is in many clubs and in football in general, they look at the direct results, you know, uh, while something like a mental coach or a fitness coach uh, or a, even a goalkeeper coach, they are all things they will help the head coach to get results, but it's the head co coach who's responsible for the results. So some teams, they don't see at some point in, in, in their life the advantage of some certain staff members. But I'm sure that for every club, uh, it would be beneficial and for mm. every federation. Yeah, and in terms of maybe like the players and uh, as a psychologist maybe helping the players themselves, like... Yeah, you think that could be also beneficial, like maybe their well-being if they're struggling, like mentally. We've talked about, you know, uh, let's I say think, the yeah. I think I think it's it's very important um, as well. Like for example, I live now abroad, but many of my players also lived abroad. Like even in yeah. China, yeah, the players they are coming from all different cities, living together with us. Uh, and you see, there are always some moments with the players that mentally it goes a little bit down because they're missing family or they're far away from home or it's been a long time and I, or they're not playing good for a couple of weeks and it starts to affect them mentally. So I believe it really helps them. Uh, it can help them to cope with this kind of situations, but also like when I was following the course, they do some visualization exercises, some breathing techniques. Uh, I think these kinds of things are also very important for players that many players don't even know about. Um, and I think it's very important to educate them, especially maybe at younger ages, that it gets some kind of habit for them, rather than when they turn 25 and it's the first time they do it and actually they miss this already for 10 years of their career. Mm, even with like the travel, what you mentioned earlier, like sports psychologists can help with that in terms of like optimizing the players, like how they are mentally when they arrive to the grounds um, after traveling for like 10 hours, you know, with and we had a sports psychologist who was our lecturer who, who spoke about that uh, with Leicester Sitter. Um, so, you know, sports psychologists can have impact in, in all different areas of, uh, of the club in terms of the culture and, and everything. So it definitely is beneficial, um, yeah. for sure. Yeah, I agree 100%. And um, so I was also curious, so in terms of your next steps, where do you see yourself maybe in the next five years? Would you? I was also curious. Would you like to go to the UK? Uh, or is it? Oh. Or is the weather not good enough? <laughs> I'm sure, the weather is not good enough. No, I would love. I would love to 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 work in the UK because you know Premier League, specifically the Premier League, but in general English football is 
regarded as one of the highest, if not the highest competition in, in the world. So if you can work there, I think it's always, it would be amazing opportunity. Um, and I think as a Belgian coach, I don't believe there's any Belgian coaches yet in, uh, in England. So I would not mind it to be the first one there, but let's see. Uh, I, to be honest, before, when I was younger, I really set some goals, but what I'm seeing now is I always try to make small goals, like, uh, what would be the next step or what I should try to aim. But in football, many times you cannot, cannot really plan it because you don't know which offer will come or what will happen in your club next. I think personally at this time, my goal is, you know, like I said before, I work for United World for the group with the different companies, uh, with the different football clubs. I think my goal on the short term is to, to grow within United World to, to help the club Al-Hilal, but also try to help the other clubs uh, in whatever roles they, they want me there or need me there uh, in person or from distance. And I think as much as I can help United World, uh, as much it will also benefit me uh, in my development. So that's the goal that I have at the moment. Yeah, love that. Um, but yeah, no, in terms of like all the questions we had for you, they were all sort of the questions. Uh, thanks so much for coming on. We really appreciate it. It's been a been a really good podcast. Um, I've loved listening to like your experiences and the cultural differences. I always find super interesting. Um, so yeah, normally at this moment I give the the guest a moment to like shout out anything. All your socials and that will be in the description of the YouTube video. Is there anything you want to say? No, I, I'm very happy that you give me the opportunity to speak, and uh, I think it's, uh, it was very nice also from my side. I, I really enjoyed it. So. I'm very happy that I got the opportunity. Okay. Um, so yeah, we hope you enjoyed this episode. If you could please share this with your friends or someone you would feel would benefit from it. Most importantly, like, subscribe, comment down below any questions or guests you'd like us to get in the future. Also go follow us on Twitter or Instagram. Links will be in the description of the YouTube video or find us at Master in the Mind podcast. Thanks for listening and we'll see you in the next one.